Welcome to the Pre-Health Pod. My name is Lexi. And I'm Sarah. And we're a podcast by students for students who have been through undergrad, are going through application processes at med school and PA school, and are here to meet you where you are. Yeah, so excited to be chatting with you, Sarah. We're back on our fourth episode now. So excited. Yeah, I'm really excited for this episode too. Today we got to interview Dr. Todd Wills. He is the assistant dean from USF's PA program. And we kind of just get into the dirty details of all about PA school, what it is, why we bother with it, (laughs) how hard (laughs) it is to get in, things you can do to improve your application. And fortunately, a lot of it can be crossed over to pre-med students as well. He gives a lot of really good advice about just interviewing in general and ways to stand out as a candidate. So it was a good, it was a good interview and you can look forward to listening to that after you listen to us chat. Yeah, I absolutely loved our conversation with him as a pre-med who absolutely knows nothing about the PA process, or at least the application process. I know of the career, Um, you know, it was quite interesting and, and I, it's really good to know, you know, as our future coworkers, physician assistants, we should probably know what their education and application process was like. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I'm going to jump into it and give you my big, exciting news. Oh my gosh. I have no idea. This is very exciting. No, it's, it's, (laughs) I'm trying to frame it as a good thing. And I hope that my framing it this way will help other pre-health students down the line. Um, Okay. I'm excited. Yesterday. I received my first rejection from PA school. Oh my God. Yeah. So uh, I know, I know. Hear me like out. Like okay? celebrate? <laughs> What's going on? Hear me <laughs> out. When, so when I first read that email that I got rejected from this school, at first I was really upset and I was really down and I was like, why did I not get accepted? I meet all yeah. of the requirements my GPA is above what they're asking for. My GRE was great. Like, why Why did this happen? Why don't they want me based on my application? Did I do something wrong in my personal statement? And mm. I kind of spiraled for a minute. And then I spoke with a really good friend of mine who's in PA school about it. And she was like, oh, I got rejected from that one too. Congrats, you're not moving to Georgia. And I was like, oh, I'm not moving to Georgia. I have crossed off an option from my list because at the end of the day, I'm going to go to PA school. I will keep applying until someone accepts me. This is the path I've chosen. I'm content working towards it for however long it takes. So all that I have done by getting rejected is I've checked off a place I could possibly move. I've narrowed down my options. There's less uncertainty in my life. I know that that was not the school for me. And I have 12 more schools to hear back from. So I'm trying not to take it in such a negative way that I think a lot of us will initially do. And I encourage everyone listening, as you get rejections, it's just a door closed. It doesn't mean all your doors have closed. It's just one. And keep waiting and be persistent and just wait out those (laughs) graduate schools. Sarah, I want to give you a hug through the zoom. (laughs) I'm so sorry that happened. And I truly think you're having such a good reaction. Um, what a positive growth mindset, but you know, I, I still applaud you for still feeling your feelings. It's so important that like, I've gotten a lot of rejections over the years 
for scholarships, you know, study abroad programs, things like that. And, you know, seeing that letter, it's never easy. And I, I really am, you know, just so impressed how you're able to take this experience and realize that we can move on. And, you know, this is one less thing to worry about and one more thing I can cross off my list. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. There's, I mean, one of the craziest parts about PA school is that you apply to all of these places and you have no idea who's going to accept you, where you're going to have to move and when that's even going to happen. So yeah. there really is a little aspect of relief in knowing that I will not be starting school at the time that they were going to start at and I will not be having to move to Georgia. So yeah, those things are no longer an option and that's okay. I have other options waiting for me. You know, that was quite a quick turnaround too. So quick. Because it's still the summer. Yeah, that's honestly, that was one of the things that surprised me the most was I was really like, okay, it really came down to my application. Something in there is not a match with them. Yeah. Wow. Well, are you, have you gotten any other interview invites or are you still waiting? No, I'm still waiting. Everyone keeps sending out emails saying that they won't be sending out invitations until August or September. Some of them even like October, November, December. (laughs) Wow. So we just sit here and we wait. Yeah. I'm glad they give you a heads up though. That's really nice of them. Yeah. Your turn. What's new with you? (laughs) I don't know how to follow that. Um, Well, I am still waiting for secondaries and I am pre-writing my secondary essays. So last night I took like three hours going through some like cross-referencing all of the MCAT prep companies. They have like secondary databases and also going on the school secondary databases from um, last year and the years before and listing, and this might be over the top, but listing the questions, like pre-writing, doing a Google doc per school with all of the questions and kind of seeing which ones are similar and starting to like make a to-do list of, all right, I'm going to do five school secondaries today, five tomorrow and have it done within the next two weeks. Um, right now it's the middle of June And I'm hoping that I'll receive secondary essays at the end of June or first week of July, based on what I've been hearing on the internet, (laughs) just from like my mentors and other physician advisors. And it's a good idea. And this is a pro tip to pre-write your essays, at least get a general gist. Another thing I learned about secondary essays that I've been doing is every question that they ask you provide a relevant example from one of your experiences on your work activity section, or maybe like a humanistic experience or um, really anything to provide like a vivid image in your response. I think that was a really good piece of advice I got from one of the medical students I am friends with. Um, And yeah, I'll be doing that for my secondary essays. And that's really it for the month of July. um, I have a question for you. Oh boy. I'm, well, I'm PA mine. So I already <laughs> yeah. did all my secondaries. They provide them to you almost immediately and all the questions are there. So there wasn't really time to prep my secondaries. How do you know that you're answering the questions that are going to be asked of you on your secondaries? Yeah. Um, I never know for sure, but I know that like there's a general, like general types of questions that are asked every year. 
One example is like, what is a significant challenge or obstacle that you have faced? Um, Some other things are like touch on a clinical experience that was really important to you um, or that really like changed your mindset or really influenced your passion for medicine. Um, Things like that can be a little consistent through several schools and usually tend to appear again, but I do not know 100% for sure. You know, obviously I'm not going to be able to get this all done by the time I get my secondary essays in my email. Um, It'll just give me a little bit of a head start. Okay, that makes more sense. Plus, uh, I applied to 23 schools. And so, and each school asks anywhere from one to like eight questions. (laughs) So it's, you know, and once you get like the email from your school to fill out secondaries, like they all kind of start happening at once. And it's highly suggested to get those in like within two weeks. So very busy. (laughs) Wait, wait, wait. You applied to 23 schools? Yeah, I did. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. And so many. Is that normal? Yeah, it's quite normal. Um, I know like the minimum expected in like the pre-health community is 15. And then like the average is 25. So I know I was... Well, I was looking at my list and I had like 26 and I was like, let me make sure I'm actually like have a a really strong interest for every single school here because it is a lot of schools and I want to make sure I'm well prepared for my secondary essays. So I went back through them and I was like, I got rid of three that I did not think I fit well with their mission or I didn't really want to move to that area of the country. Um, Another piece of advice, um, truly look through your school list and align yourself with their mission and their values, it should be on their website and start to think about how well you would fit within their um, medical student base. Yeah, that's really good advice. That's something that took forever to do for PA programs, combing through every single school's missions, values. And, you know, I think what simplified it the most for me was starting with just places I would be willing to move to. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's what I did. I sat down with my boyfriend and I literally pulled up a map of the United States and I was like, so where would you be willing to live? Yeah. I did something (laughs) very similar. He, uh, yeah. Cause you know, he's, uh, he and I are, are in it for life. And, um, I also got to make sure he would like to live there too. (laughs) (laughs) Before you drag him along. So yeah, that's me. Um, I'm also working full time. Um, with like further nonprofit work and, you know, working on the national pre-health conference coming soon, July 26th to the 28th. Got to plug that in, um, get your tickets. Spots are very limited at national pre-health And other than that, um, I'm also doing one community college course too. That's like an accelerated course, fulfilling my last physiology requirement for one of the medical schools that I'm applying to. Um, and yeah, I'm also trying to take a break. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, here's my Florida update. I still haven't seen any alligators. So, oh my God. <laughs> Are you serious? A big question mark there. But I have seen an armadillo. And I'll be honest Aww. with you, I had no idea those existed in Florida. I thought, 
I don't know. I'm not a zoologist, guys. I don't pay attention to animals or where they live. I also suck at geography. So (laughs) I was very surprised when there was an armadillo crossing. Yeah. No, Sarah. They are. And when I was a kid in my backyard, we had an armadillo family. Armadillo (gasps) mom laid eggs. I actually don't know, but all of a sudden there were armadillo babies. Armadillo babies? It was so cute. Yeah. Okay, something to look for. But yeah, but that's we my Florida alive. update. <laughs> um, Phoenix update, it's really hot. It's like 110, 120 degrees. You know, all my Phoenix people out there, I'm so sorry. Stay indoors, drink lots of water. That's it. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I think we'll just jump on over to some of the questions that we had from our little... I don't know, webpage survey. Yeah. Um, we did a little survey for people who are interested in our podcast and they asked a few questions that they kind of wanted to have us talk about. Um, so the first one is, you know, what are some great study tips you guys had in your undergrad? So Sarah, what was your go-to study tip? Okay. This was my, this was my format. I don't think it will work for everyone, but this is what I did. Before I went to a lecture, I had already read all of the reading requirements that were like set out for the lecture that week. I always read things well in advance, took detailed notes on what I read. So I showed up to every lecture prepared. Doing this is something that not a lot of people do because it's hard. But by doing this, I set myself up to be able to answer questions. So if the professor was asking questions, because most of them do, I was able to raise my hand and actually give him a response because I prepared for the lecture. And by doing that, I gave myself more of an interactive learning environment, which is what I do best in. I really don't do well in class settings where I just am lectured at the whole time and there's no like interaction at all. And they just finish their slides and move on with the day. So doing it this way kind of made those types of environments a little more interactive for me, helped me stay focused. And then the other thing that I did that really helped was instead of taking notes during my lectures, I would create flashcards based off what the professor was saying while he was lecturing. And then preparing for exams, I just quickly skimmed through my notes because if I wrote the notes, I know the steps. So I'm just going to skim any topics that I'd land on that I was like, I can't picture this in my head. I would write it on a little piece of paper. And then after I got all those, I would draw that thing out, whatever it was. So I knew what it looked like, what it was, whether it was like a microscopic thing or just like an organ system, I had to be able to draw it. And then the last thing I would do to prepare for exams is I would do my flashcards from the lectures. And that was kind of my system. And it worked well, I think. I mean, the GPA stuck, so it was good. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you pretty much hit it on the money. I did basically the same thing. I read up wow. on the reading, but I mainly did most of the spark notes for the reading. Cause <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. I mean, I went through the reading a little bit, but I, I did wait until the lecture to get the full gist of the information. Um, okay. But yeah, I did the same thing. Quizlet was my lifesaver throughout college. I bought Quizlet Pro. I gave in and I like would allow me to upload images to every term. Um, but yeah, throughout lectures, I just like literally make quizlets off of the PowerPoint or whatever he was saying and add on little details and literally boarding, which was probably not very wise, like skateboarding to, to class. I'd like have my phone out and be going through my flashcards. Oh my gosh. And like, I'd make sure to do it 
several times before my exams. One other thing you touched on that I was obsessed with was drawing. I think that was literally about 70% of my studying was just color pencils and markers and computer paper, or if really exciting, a poster board. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I went a little nuts. I remember I took this immunology course at ASU that was really kicking my butt. And oh my first, gosh, she sent me her immunology notes once. Well, you yes, guys, you, you know, girl, I'm going to talk about this. You guys, <laughs> I'm so proud of it. It was, <laughs> oh my gosh, it, you can talk about it. It prepare yourselves. You'll never achieve this. This is an unachievable no, that's not feat. True. <laughs> I, okay, I enjoy it because I like drawing, but anyway. Okay. So anyway, immunology, I was like not doing so well on my first exam. I got like a, a C or a D or something. There was a curve, but I was like, I really wanted that A. And I was like, I don't know what to do. Some of my friends were dropping the course. I really did not want to because I really liked immunology. I love the topic. Just the exams were really hard because there was so much information and so much content. Yeah. And so what I did is I took bought this giant poster board and I took all of the lectures and I did a, like a mental map. Have you guys ever heard of the mind castle? Or I guess Sarah, have you ever learned of the, the mind castle? I have castle? from you. <laughs> so the mind castle is where you take one little piece and you connect it to the next part and the next part and the next part. And it all like intertwines at different nodes. And I would draw this out on my major map or on my like imaginative map. And maybe I'll post this like on the Instagram story or something when this comes out so you guys can see. It's insane. And I did this for this immunology topic was on like B cells and T cells and their functions and then all the different like cytokine responses and things like that. And so I would take it and be like, all right, so I got a vaccine or I got infected with something. Here's a response. Then this would be the response. Then this would be the adaptive response. And then it would go from there. And yeah, it saved my life. I, I did well in the last exam because I was able to like image it in my head. You don't have to go to that level. I would screenshot it <laughs> and I'd like sit in bed before my, cause I was like, I know my sleep will store this. So I would sit in bed and like, look at it on my phone. And then I go to sleep and I wake up and I'd be like, I know it. Well, <laughs> we're going to have to share this on our Instagram. We're going to make a mental note to share this. Because yeah. you sent it to me once when I was like, Lexi, I'm really struggling with immunology. Do you have any study <laughs> tips? And you sent me this map and I was like, I'm screwed. It's over. <laughs> I still have it. Um, it my was boyfriend insane. wants to get rid of it, but. <laughs> okay. So in contrast, when I am writing or drawing things to remember it, I only draw the things I'm struggling to remember. I never draw everything. (laughs) Yeah. And that works just fine for me. That's all I need. That that works too. I used to, my freshman year, draw every little process and tape it all over my dorm room, like on a computer paper, above my head, on my bed, above my desk. Dude, I was like that too. I even like, no, I did that my freshman year. I was crazy about studying and like trying to remember every single tiny detail. I would, oh my gosh, I can't even remember what it's called. What's it called when you like put something in plastic and you heat it up, you laminate it. I used to laminate (laughs) my notes 
so that I could read them in the shower. Oh my God. Are you serious? How pre-man is that? I kind of wish I hadn't admitted that on this podcast. No, that's hilarious. But I did do that. Girl, I'm going to do do that, that, guys. No. Oh my gosh. Well, you're in medical school. You have like no time. Hold on, hold on. I'm going to transition really quick to a mental health advice. Here's something I learned after my freshman year when I went crazy and lost it with my laminated shower nibs. It is important to have some self-care time. You don't have to go get your nails done. You don't have to like go get massages or facials. Like that's not what I mean by self-care. I mean, when you're eating dinner at night, just eat dinner. Don't eat dinner with a textbook. Eat dinner with a friend or your significant other or with the TV on. Just please don't eat dinner with a textbook. That's how you know you're in too deep. That's true. (laughs) And take showers without notes, please. Just listen to music instead. Let your mind turn off. (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah, don't post your computer paper visuals all over your dorm room. That's also not healthy because then you go to bed and look at it and you're like, oh. Yeah, you create like this constant state of stress in your body and then your cortisol levels will skyrocket and you're miserable. So learn from our mistakes. You know, I feel like this process really kind of like ingrains in us that we need to be really strict about our studying and have to do all of these things to make sure we get the best grade possible. Yeah. Um, But I just want to tell you guys that, you know, whatever you're doing, it's okay. You, You just do the best you can and take breaks and you have the rest of your life to be a doctor. Yeah. And that's what we're really trying to do on this podcast. I honestly, PSA, let's chill out. <laughs> let's chill. Let's chill. That's something. If, if that's one thing I could tell my freshman or sophomore yourself, I'd be like, it's okay. Just chill. We're good. Yeah. Another thing personally, like I started seeing a therapist to help me learn how to take breaks and manage some of like the anxiety around getting perfect grades and getting a certain score in exams. And, yeah. you know, I highly recommend that too. And there, I wish there wasn't a stigma around this. I feel like everybody should have a therapist. You don't need to have a problem to see a therapist. It can just be someone external to talk to about, you know, how your month is going, how's your week going. And, you know, personally is really, really helped me. And my mental health has never been better because of seeing my therapist. He's the best. Absolutely. No. And I, I should have given more credit to my therapist because I did not come to the realization that I shouldn't be eating dinner with a textbook. That was all him. (laughs) He was the one who called me out on that and was like, let's change this. And as soon as I changed that behavior, I realized I was a lot more happy. Yeah. My therapist was like, what will it mean if you don't get an A? what will it mean if you don't get into medical school this year? And it's like, uh, uh, I guess I'm a failure. And he's like, you're not a failure. You have the rest of your life to be a doctor. So definitely got that ingrained in my head. (laughs) Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I encourage you all to look into the resources available to you at your universities. Tons, almost all universities now have counseling and behavioral health resources 
available to their students for discounted prices or even free, depending on the university you're at, or even if you're on like the university's student health insurance policies, they often include those things. So definitely look into those resources if you're struggling with any kind of mental health. And yeah, we hope you all enjoy this episode with Dr. Wills and stick around because it's a good one. And welcome Dr. Todd Wills, who is the Assistant Dean and Director of the Physician Assistant Program at the University of South Florida in Tampa, Florida. He is a professor of internal medicine and infectious diseases in the Department of Internal Medicine and practices clinically at Tampa General Hospital and the James A. Haley VA Hospital. He completed medical school at the University of South Florida internal medicine residency at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and infectious diseases fellowship training at the University of South Florida. So welcome, Dr. Wills. It's so nice to have you on. I'm really excited to speak with you today. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, welcome. Um, I'm so excited to talk to you about the PA application process and what it looks like or what this career path entails. Um, I know Sarah wants to be a PA, um, but personally, I have never considered, I have considered this career path, but I've never gone into it or really had known anything about the application process. And after talking with Sarah, it seems quite different than the medical school application process. So uh, quite excited to learn from you and hear from you and help our audience learn more about becoming a physician assistant. Great. Yeah. And I'm happy to help them navigate that process and understand it a little bit better. Yeah, awesome. I think I'm constantly surprising Lexi with PA school <laughs> application facts, PA in general facts. I think I'm constantly blowing her mind about what it is to be a PA. So I'm excited for the audience to learn more about it too, because I really think everyone should fully understand what being a PA is all about and what PA school entails and the application process before they truly decide they actually want to go to medical school. Because for me, being a PA is the path. It's the only path that I ever really seriously considered. But I know other people who consider medical school that eventually realize that PA school is the better fit for them and that they would be more successful in that field. So hopefully this is where we catch those people and say, hey, this this is a thing. You've got this. But I'm going to jump right into our first question. Um, so Dr. Wills, what do you feel is like a big strength of USF's PA program? And maybe just like tell us a little bit about the culture and what makes the program so great. Sure. And I'm happy to do that. Um, I've been the founding director of our PA program. So I've been with it since it launched in 2015. And if you talk to every PA program director around the country, each would tell you that the culture of their program is unique and special. Um, and the reason they would tell you that is because that's true for every program. Every program has its own unique characteristics that are going to be valuable to the students who decide to matriculate there. And no matter who I'm talking to, even the most competitive applicants to our program, I always tell them when I'm interviewing them, this may or may not be the right fit for you. Everyone should really think hard about the program they're interviewing at and find the one who the people they interviewed with, the students they talked to, the facilities, and the culture of the program fit their personality, their learning style, and their career aspirations. Now, 
when I talk about the program I'm most proud of at USF, the things that really make its culture unique are a very engaged group of faculty. Um, among mm. our faculty are still many of the faculty that helped to found our program. And a newish versus an old PA program can have strengths and weaknesses. But for a program that is more recently launched, such as ours, now we're in our um, sixth group of students, a big advantage is the program has been designed using the most contemporary teaching models, trying to teach people in a way that we've learned to be most effective and to prepare them to be the best PAs that they can be. And our culture is one of very engaged faculty who know you, who get to know your career aspirations, your personal aspirations, your learning styles. So we can make sure that our program is as effective as it can be for you. Because no matter what, people don't go to PA school just because they want to hang a degree on the wall. They go to PA school because they want to practice and be the best PA possible. And so we do a lot of things to try to prepare you for that. Um, our curriculum is really strong in simulation-based learning. Now, that doesn't mean that you're working with robots and mannequins all the time. It means that you're working through the thought process of medical care. When you have a patient who comes in with a complaint, how do you figure out what's going on? What are the right questions to ask? How do you examine that patient to figure out what's going on? What lab tests might you order, et cetera? And those are pretty advanced skills, but as you guys know from some of your preliminary learning about PA school, PA school is a pretty abbreviated curriculum. So we get our students involved right from the get-go in learning how to make those medical decisions, learning how to gather new information, et cetera. So our sort of get your feet wet fast culture is a real strong part of our curriculum. And we just had our most recent cohort start in May. Already they can tell us six weeks in, they feel like completely different people than they did just a few weeks ago, the way that they can understand information and apply it to clinical care. So we are very proud of our didactic year. It's something that prepares our students well to enter into their clinical rotations. Um, and probably, I don't even know if it's the secret part of our program, but the crown jewel of our program is our clinical year. So um, just like you do 12 months of in-class work, we do 12 months of clinical work. And at USF, our students get to work at some of the best hospitals in the state of Florida. They're working at a tertiary care hospital at Tampa General Hospital with a thousand beds and nearly every medical specialty you can imagine. They're working at a National Comprehensive Cancer Center at Moffitt Cancer Center, where they see cutting-edge cancer research, and they see the way that PAs play a leadership role in that sort of hospital. And they work at one of the best VA hospitals in the country, where high-quality wow. care is delivered to our veterans, and they learned a system-based approach to medicine. And we're very proud for our PA students that all of those clinical rotations take place in the same metro area. They don't have to travel far to get to their rotations, and they get to learn a whole lot within a medical school that's been training medical students since the 70s and has added to that the training of PA students who are going to be really a big part of the growth of medical care over the next 
several decades. Wow, that's fantastic. Um, how big are the classes at your school? So at our PA program, we take 50 students each year. So we have a total of 100 students. And it's oh, a, that's so small. It's a 24 month curriculum. So um, and if you look at sizes of PA programs, um, as you said, you're planning to go to med school. Yeah. 50 sounds small to you. And for PA right. programs, 50 is middle to large. There's, oh, wow. there's, there's PA programs that might have 15 students. There's PA programs that might have up to 120. But that 50 to 60 range is really a pretty common cohort size for PA schools. What's the national acceptance rate? Because I know for medical schools, it's like 36%. What would you say it is for PA schools? I don't have the number off the top of my head, so I don't want to miss. Oh yeah, no problem. (laughs) I don't, I don't think it's significantly different than that. So I can, I can tell you from our own program. And um, if we try to do the math in our heads, I guess we could, but we get about, (laughs) um, we get about um, 1200 applicants for our program. We interview Mm -hmm. 150 of them to seat 50 people. So it is a rather low acceptance rate as well for PA school. Um, yeah. And similar, I think, to med school in that way. Yeah. I know that definitely sounds about yeah. right. <laughs> Looking at my demographics for, or my yeah. statistics for each school, I'm like, wow, it's like 1%. Okay. <laughs> right. And those individual program acceptance rates don't automatically correlate to a national rate because, of course, people are applying to yeah. multiple schools. So if we accept less than 10% of our applicants, it doesn't mean that the other 90% never got into PA school. They may have chosen a different program for a variety of different reasons. Yeah. And I know you both could probably answer this, but you know, I applied average to 25 medical schools. What's the number for PA schools that people typically apply to? I think for PA schools, you're probably looking at people applying to at least 10 of them or so. Um, Okay. Yeah. I would agree. a, A difference for PA schools though is it's a little harder to apply to as many as you might apply to med school because Mm. the PA admissions calendar isn't standardized. I I wouldn't call it an advantage because going into med school is also a big challenge and a very stressful thing. But what advantage you have as an MD program applicant is most of the medical schools are going to start somewhere between July and September. And you're going to interview during the same season. Maybe if you went right from undergrad to med school, you'd be applying during your senior year, finding out your decision and matriculating the next year. Yeah, sort of correlating with a regular academic year. But if you look at PA programs, ours starts in May and finishes in May two years later. There are other programs that might not even be 24 months long. They might start in May and finish August 27 months later. There are programs that start in January. There are programs that start in June. Some start in (laughs) September. So crazy. (laughs) When you're trying to decide, (laughs) when you're trying to decide which programs you're going to apply to, some of it's going to be based on the calendar. We have gained some great students in our program because ours was starting at the right time for them. We've lost some great students because ours wasn't starting at a time that worked out as well for their calendar and. That's the thing that um, is a unique challenge to PA students and uh, pre-PA students. And I I can't tell you what a great solution there is to it. (laughs) 
Wow. Um, there is no solution. <laughs> Sarah, I know yeah. for me, my family is always asking, asking me, they're so like, when would you know next spring? I'm like, well, it could be January through before I start medical school, but it seems, I thought that was insane and it seems way worse for you. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I have this hopeful notion of maybe I'll have an answer possibly November, December, but sometimes mm-hmm. that feels like a pipe dream. <laughs> right. Yeah. So and, it's, it's hard. Yeah. And even those ideas of when a program starts and when you might find out can be variable. Programs yeah. also might operate on a rolling admission where they'll tell you a day or two after your interview, whether you're accepted. Some might tell you a couple months after. Some might wait until they've interviewed the entire cohort and let them know after that. And so when you're applying to PA schools, you have to be very mindful of what are the specific expectations and requirements of this program and what are they asking me to do different than a different program might. Exactly. And I just have to say, I know I'm backtracking a little bit, but the program at USF, it's like unmatched. I I know a lot of people listening to this will wonder, why USF? Why did we pick this school? Why is that? If you don't understand that now, I don't know how to spell it out for you like even further. This program is so amazing and it just sets you up for the most success as a PA student. And I'm so excited that we get to talk about it more. And I have kind of a guiding question based off of that. I know that USF does a capstone research project. And I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about why you guys do a research project, because most PA schools, there are a few that do it. But when I was scrolling through applications and like applying to different schools, capstone research projects were far and few between. So Mm -hmm. I would love if we could talk about why you guys do that. Yeah. And I agree with you. If you look through a lot of PA schools, you won't find a capstone research project frequently. Yeah. Um, And To clarify, our capstone research project isn't asking our students to go into a lab and invent a new antibiotic or whatever, Um, but it is asking them to become academic physician assistants. And the reason we find it important for us to place a capstone research project in our program is one of the things we value about our program is that we are part of a high quality academic medical center. And part of being in an academic medical center means that you understand that the practice of medicine happens because you ask intelligent questions and try to figure out the best answer for them. So when we ask our students to do a capstone research project, we're asking them to survey some part of either their didactic year learning or their clinical year learning, identify a clinical question that may not be resolved yet and interrogate the medical literature and find out what are the challenges to answering that question? What is the leading edge of trying to answer that question? And how can you inform your practice when you're taking care of a patient to make sure you're using the best information available to make an informed decision? Um, We're talking on computers right now. Obviously, a big trend and conversation point in healthcare is how will AI change the way that we deliver healthcare? So 
if all we did was teach our students, look up in an online resource for the answer to how to take care of your patient and what the resource says is what you do, we are teaching our students to be replaced by an algorithm in the future. But if we teach them that medicine is an art and most questions haven't yet been answered, but most questions can be reasonably approached by interrogating the medical literature, asking well thought out questions and finding out the best way to take care of your patients. So our capstone project is meant not to be the final answer for our students, but to be a relatively extended journey into how do I ask questions and how can I do that in real time when I'm taking care of them in my clinic 12 months from now? Yeah, that's awesome. I think I think it's really important regarding the AI and its use in the medical field. I had a mentor who pulled up the AI like app or website browser that lets you type <laughs> in like no, it wasn't ChatGPT. It was even better because you what? just like <laughs> typed in a little blurb about what the patient was coming in with and it spit out an entire patient care plan. And he showed it to me and he goes, you cannot use this. You cannot rely on this. I don't want you to ever look at this because you will not be a good PA if you ever use this to answer questions for yourself. And I was like, Okay, great. But then it got yeah. me thinking, holy cow, this is a thing. This is a thing that exists now. This is crazy. <laughs> yeah. And if you, um, the dean of our medical school um, who oversees our program and our MD program and our college of pharmacy, our college of nursing, sees a lot of different medical learning. Yeah. Whenever we're having a big event, whether it be one of our commitment to professionalism ceremonies or our graduations, he always reminds the students that medical knowledge is used to double maybe every three months. Now it doubles probably every couple of weeks. So yeah. we're, we can't teach our students in a way that says, when you finish this 24 months, what we've taught you is the information you need for the future. What we've done best is to teach you, here's the best practices for now, and here's how you learn in an ongoing way. So you're always providing the best care because 10 years from now, it is likely that everything we taught you in our PowerPoints and our lectures and our simulation exercises isn't true anymore. And we're doing completely different things, but that doesn't mean your PA training program experience was useless. Yeah. It means that it prepared you to be adaptable and ready to change as practice patterns changed. Absolutely. That's so important. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. Um, I remember I went to this medical school seminar about like tips and tricks to get into medical school, basically. And a medical student was presenting there my freshman year. And something he said really stuck with me. He said that, and I don't know how true it is, but half of what you learn in medical school in 10 years will change. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that sounds like a lot of work in <laughs> four years of medical school that will just change. But I really appreciate what you said. And I think it's really important that your students are doing a research capstone project. And I know in, in my field, I want to go into a surgical specialty mm -hmm. and I really value research. And I'm, you know, day one, I get into medical school, I'm going to find a research lab and the specialty I'm interested in. 
because of that that same reason, that thought process, that scientific reasoning is so important for any future physician. Right. Um, do you have a requirement or maybe like highly suggested of your applicants to have research experience for your school? So we don't have a requirement for research experience. If someone does okay. have it, um, we don't look down on that, of course. But yeah. what we do hope is that if someone has research experience, it wasn't just to put a research line on their resume or their application. And if I'm interviewing an applicant and they have research experience that they highlighted, perhaps maybe in their personal statement, they wrote about it, I'm going to ask them about it because they've said it's important to them. And I want to then understand, what did you get out of it? What did you understand about the role you played in that research and what it could have done? Um, and sometimes that can be a little bit of a, a, a trap for a student. Not that I'm meaning to trap them, but if you write about your research just to make an impressive application, but in an interview, can't convey why you did it or why it was important to you, then it tells me that was just to buff your application. It yeah. wasn't to gain experience. And so <laughs> Absolutely. Um, that doesn't mean don't do research. It means if you're having any experience, whether if you're working in a nursing home for clinical hours or doing research, or um, maybe you're doing a, a job in business for some other reason, get a valuable experience out of it. Learn from it, help your experiences to grow and inform what you're going to be in the future. So I ask that of everyone, right? Yeah. Whatever, it whatever like, you do, make sure it's valuable to you. It seems like you really value more of like the passion this student has for their said experience. You know, if they can convey in an interview that they're, they really love what they did and the experience they had and that they were passionate about it. I think that's more important than, you know, just listing an item and having difficulties explaining it. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's not even that you have to be passionate about it. It could also be, I did that. And what I learned was that wasn't for me. I, <laughs> I did, oh, interesting. A, I did a summer of benchtop research and I said, oh my God, that's not what I want to be. <laughs> Never I again. I can see a different thing. And so that's fine too, but just don't have it be a thing you did anonymously that had no impact on your future trajectory because Absolutely. you've kind of wasted your own time. Yeah. That's something that I, I have a couple students that I used to mentor and still mentor. And that's one of my check-in items is asking them how their volunteering is going or how their research is going or whatever extracurricular they're doing and listening to their response and then sometimes guiding them to the answer that they don't have much to say about this. They don't love this. They clearly don't seem to be paying much attention to this. Maybe we should be redirecting to a different thing that you're more mm -hmm. interested in because I just hate to watch people sitting at a bench doing something yeah. they hate when they don't need to be. And there's better opportunities out there that they could be learning about. Right. And I think that's going to be true for PA. It's obviously true for med school as well. Um, every, um, everything is not simply what your drive is and your passion. Um, yeah. There's a lot of the PA application process that is hard facts about your academic trajectory. 
Mm. How well did you do in your prerequisite classes? If your program accepts GREs or other tests, how did you do on those? Those are certainly an important part of the application process, but a person with great metrics in those areas can falter in the interview process by not having a clear passion or drive for the field. And someone who might be marginal in either of those quantitative areas could really impress an interviewer by their passion, their drive, their commitment. So I think passion helps a marginal candidate. Lack of passion can hurt an outstanding numbers candidate. But no matter what, for all of them, it's important for us to see that you understand how to work through difficult situations. You can make your way through challenges, whether those are academic, work-related, or whatever. Yeah. And you have an understanding of the PA profession, what makes it valuable, and what makes it different than other healthcare professions. Yeah, that's amazing. And I think it kind of ties into my next question about what are the character traits that stand out to you in the applicants that you're seeing? So the applicants that most impress me, and again, when we're doing our application process, it's a full committee. So we never rely on one person's snapshot view because people can leave different impressions from one interviewer to the next. Which is great for us. (laughs) Yeah. But what I'm looking for and what in impresses me most about a candidate is someone who can honestly and clearly tell me about themselves and their motivations that got them from whatever point, it could be from birth to this (laughs) interview today, right? What journey did you take to decide that being a PA student is important to me I valued putting in the work to get to this point because this is the end point I want to be at, either for career aspiration, variability in the field, desire to make a contribution to the healthcare of their community. Those are important facets. Um, If someone were to tell me, hey, I decided to go to PA school because I looked at med school and it was twice as long. Well, that's not a great motivation, (laughs) right? Yeah, I (laughs) know. But if it is, I like the flexibility of the PA profession. I like that if I became a PA, I can practice in a field of my interest. And if my career aspirations change, maybe I can change my specialty focus. Maybe if the needs of the community I'm practicing in change, I can change my practice to meet those needs. Those are important understandings of the PA profession that we're looking for in an applicant. Do you know what makes the PA profession unique? Do you understand the role that you might play? And do you understand that you can be a leader in the healthcare field as a physician assistant? Absolutely. I think that's great. And honestly, great advice for all of you listeners. Because I think (laughs) that is just as applicable to PA school as it is medical school. So even if you are working towards medical school, use that. (laughs) Let that guide you. And 
I know that interview season is fast approaching so quickly, terrifying. Um, (laughs) So do you have any advice for the pre-PA students preparing for their interviews? So some advice. First, each program is different. So inform yourself about the program you're going to. What makes it unique? Why did you decide to apply to it to begin with? And what would make you a good fit for that program? So that's one. Um, If you come to a program and it doesn't even appear that you're aware of the distinguishing characteristics of it, um, it's hard for us to judge that you're very interested in being a, a student. Absolutely. Second, as we've talked about so much about how different PA program interviews are, and this is true for your MD applicants, everyone. Every program has a completely different strategy for their interview day. Um, Some will have just simply interviews. You'll talk to someone about the program and your interests. Some might have you do a writing sample. Some might have you take a different examination while you're on site. Others others (laughs) might do. Yeah. (laughs) Wait a minute. (laughs) This is new. Others might do sort of mini assessments where you might be faced with a tiny problem to solve and you're measured for how you do that. So (laughs) no one's going to tell you the answers to everything that they do, but you want to be aware of what to expect for that day. When you go in, it's reasonable to ask whoever's director of admissions, what's the outline of the day and what can I expect? And so you're not not surprised when you get there to say, hey, at first, we're going to have you in a group and we're going to send your group to solve a certain problem. Or you're going to have two interviews with faculty members and a time to meet with our students. All of those things help you to be the most prepared. They'll allay a little bit of your anxiety as as an applicant because you're not going to be blindsided by something when you get there. And if they tell you, hey, we do an MMI, which is like a mini assessment type thing, you can yeah. look on Google and find out what that is. What can I expect that's going to be shaped like? So you're not caught off guard and you're as ready as you can be. Wow. So just you caught me off guard when you said writing sample. Is that like students write an essay during their interview? <laughs> well, sometimes. So um, oh, wow. some sometimes you'll be given a a prompt, write about whatever. It could be write about how you're going to handle the the difficulties of a medical curriculum. Sometimes people will say, hey, you've taken some basic biology or whatever. Tell us how the liver works, right? No. (laughs) And again, for reassurance purposes, that's not to say we're going to grade you based on your understanding of the liver and its great details. (laughs) <laughs> but it's going to say, hey, if you're given a challenging question, how do you think on your feet and do something with that, right? That is good to know. Yeah. I haven't thought about the liver since my MCAT. Yeah, that's all right. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, God. You can write a creative story about the liver and its yeah. journey. Right. <laughs> no, that's and, awesome. And... and I I will say it's not that we have that as part of ours, but part of the notion of that is (laughs) when you get to PA school, especially because of its accelerated pace, we're asking you to start making connections maybe before they've been taught to you on a PowerPoint slide. So Mm. when we're doing our small group case-based conferences, what we hope you can do is maybe you can't name the disease the patient has, 
But maybe you can say, hey, I could imagine this patient with this problem could have something wrong with their stomach. Maybe there's a problem with the blood flow there. Oh, Instead okay. of naming it, why don't we just say blood flow problem to the stomach and we'll figure out what that's called later. And when yeah. you think about things that way, you can come up with a pretty broad notion of what can break in the human body. Yeah. And then what we're doing after that is saying, hey, this is what that's called. And when that occurs, this is how we diagnose this. And this is how we treat it. Thank you so much for sharing so that. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> that's one thing that I really love about PA school is the way that just the curriculum is taught. It's so much, it's so up my alley. <laughs> it's like one of those things that I'm just like excited to start so I can start learning it. Yeah. Oh, can't wait. You know, this will probably now, be our last question. Uh, I'll, I'll oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> that excitement's going to be um, attenuated a bit once you get into PA school. I'm sure. Everyone's very excited. <laughs> and then three or four weeks later, they're like, oh my God, this is the hardest thing I've ever done. But yeah, yeah. That gets better again. I am. Mm-hmm. I have been told that I'm one of those weirdos that is just overly enthusiastic and optimistic. Oh, well, good. <laughs> so I might last an extra week. Yeah. And and we will do nothing to try to destroy that in any PA career. No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm so curious because um, I want to go into a surgical specialty. So when I graduate medical school, that's four years. And I'm probably going to do like a five plus surgical residency um, for PAs, maybe in any specialty, but especially surgical specialties after they complete their program. Are they just hired? What does that look like? So... It is possible after completing a program to be hired in a surgical specialty as a PA. The Mm. responsibilities you have are going to be based largely on what your supervising physician feels comfortable assigning to you. And partly that will be based on the program you went to. There are some PA programs that might have a more heavy surgical focus, and you may have a greater skill set going in. Um, The other thing that some PAs will do is something called a postgraduate residency or fellowship. So um, these are not as common as as you would have in med school where everyone does residency, but there are several postgraduate residencies across the country in things like surgery and trauma or emergency medicine. Here at USF at Moffitt, um, we have some in um, medical oncology and other things like that, where you get a year of additional focused training by people who practice that specifically. Sometimes people who complete those residencies stay on in the same institution where they completed it and work from there. And other times you take that skill set, and then if you were to go to a surgical practice, they know you've focused on surgical skills and the care of surgical patients for a whole extra year. Mm, and a unique thing for PAs doing these residencies, um, you're paid a little bit more than a medical resident might be because you're already a licensed provider and you can practice within your certified license while gaining these extra skills. Well, that's a perk, (laughs) a big perk. That's nice. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm excited. I think this has been great. And I'm so grateful that you were willing to give us your time this evening to talk about all of this and just to learn more about USF and just the PA process in general. Um, And before we let you go, we do have a little 
pop quiz for you. All right. <laughs> Yay. Lexi and I prepared some true or false questions about okay. PAs and PA school and things like Great. that. I'll um, be honest, this was so hard for me because I was like struggling. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, I really don't know <laughs> much about it. So I did do a lot of research. <laughs> but yeah, I think Lexi, you should try to answer mine. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. I'm curious to see if you know the answer to these. Okay, so my first question for you both is going to be true or false, PA school costs $300,000 on average in the United States. I mean, it's cheaper than medical school. I'm sure Dr. Wills knows this. <laughs> yes, I, I'm, I'm holding off on answering. You know, I was going to say, he knows all of our answers. <laughs> yeah. So what do you okay. think, Lexi? <laughs> um, I would say false. I was going to guess like 200000 I will also say false. Yeah, the national average right now is 105000 Oh, that's like a lot cheaper than two hundred. dollars Wow. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Yeah. Compared to medical school, that's, you got to keep a couple pennies. Yeah, med school. <laughs> I ran into this woman at my doctor's office and she said her son was a cleft palate surgeon. And she said that I had, she was like, I had to pay $550,000 in loans for my son, but now he's a great surgeon and just bought me this Louis Vuitton purse. So it's all wow. good. <laughs> well, that's good. So it she got off. her purse. <laughs> good for you. She was like, I was really upset for a little while, but it turned out to be great. It's like, go you. <laughs> Yeah, mother the, of the year the, the tuitions are going to be different whether you're going to a, a state school a private school etc but you'll find yeah. um a reasonable average maybe to expect if you put that all together is somewhere around 45 to fifty thousand dollars for tuition um and that's mm. when you put private schools and public schools together yeah gotcha okay Crazy well nice. i'll ask my true or false question right. um you both probably know the answer but true or false, most PA programs require a minimum number of hours on their application for clinical experience. So like working in a clinical setting. True. <laughs> true. That is true. Yes. Um, I didn't know that because it's false for medical school applicants because there's no minimum number of hours for like shadowing or clinical experience for medical school applicants. Um, there's just like a general saying, I guess, for my pre-health community that you should have around 500 for chat or for clinical experience. But again, there's like no minimum for schools, but yeah, quite different for PA. Um, yeah, what is the minimum for you guys? Well, um, for the USF program, it's 500 hours and that's not shadowing. Okay. That's doing something with direct patient care. So you're delivering yeah. some care to the patient. You're not just watching someone provide that care. If you looked across the country, those ranges of required clinical hours can be zero to 2,500. It's a pretty broad range. And so that's another thing that students wow. need to look for. Um, when we were designing and trying to think about what we wanted for clinical hours, we wanted people to have enough experience seeing patients clinically that they knew what that meant because mm. PA curricula, and I can't reinforce this enough, I probably said it 20 times already, it's a pretty compact curriculum. Right. We don't have time to acculturate you to what it means to see a patient. 
we teach you a lot about how to see a patient from a medical perspective, but we don't teach you, hey, if you're in front of a human being, this is how you interact with them. We're hoping that you've gained that and understand that. But we also didn't want to make it so excessive that people were going to take more than a year off from college just to get clinical hours. So it's a balancing act and each program has different value they place on it. Absolutely. I think a topic of interest that's been going around lately, um, scribing hours and whether or not they count as direct patient care hours. Mm -hmm. What do you think the answer should be? So I, I will tell you what the answer is for our program. Great. For our program, (laughs) scribe hours count. And the reason we count them is scribing requires a cognitive approach to the care of patients that is above and beyond just transcribing what someone said. Um, you, in order to be an effective scribe, eventually you need to understand that physician or person you're scribing for. You gain an understanding of what are they going to ask next when this person comes in with chest pain? I can anticipate that because they came in with this complaint, I bet they're going to examine this or they're going to order the following labs. And so we find that scribes have a little bit of a head start on the medical thought process. Yeah. And so it's a, it's a valuable experience. Absolutely. It's kind of crazy. I I worked as a scribe in a rural hospital where let's be honest, I outreached from the roles of a scribe. <laughs> I pushed <laughs> the limits. Um, just because we were always so understaffed and suddenly I would be handed things to do and I'd be like, oh, I guess I do this thing now. And it was always so frustrating to me to see when people didn't count scribing hours as direct patient care hours. I was yeah. always, I don't know, I guess it kind of made me feel not validated, invalidated, really. Like, hey, I, I think I know what's going on here, guys. Right. <laughs> and sometimes so people good. will will accumulate a diversity of experiences to accommodate for the fact that different programs count things differently. Um, yeah. There are programs to do. that will even give fractional credit for different types of experiences. And um, it can be a pretty complex formula. So yeah. um, look at the programs you're applying to and make sure that the thing, the places that you're interested in going, the experiences that you have will be appropriate for them. Absolutely. Yeah. When I was working as a medical scribe, I remember now one of my friends who was also a scribe she wanted to be a PA kind of a little late in the game, a little late in undergraduate. And she was scribing for a year and she realized some of the programs she wanted to get in, like apply to didn't count it as her mm-hmm. clinical experience. And so she got a job at the same hospital as a patient care tech. And so she finished a shift as a scribe and she'd like switch into her green scrubs and do her next shift as a PCT. And I was like, wow. You're doing the yeah. most. It's, I would uh, never. <laughs> she was very busy. And we've had a lot of applicants that is, if they're working in an ambulatory clinic, their job oh, yeah. might be medical assistant, but they're serving as a scribe as well. And mm. so they get almost the best of both worlds that way. Absolutely. Okay. Let's see. I have another question. All right. The funny thing about this that we really didn't think of, you literally know all of the answers. This is more of a game for Lexi. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Yeah, seriously. I'm having fun. (laughs) Well, good. Okay. 
True or false, the highest paying specialty for a PA is dermatology. False? Because I know the one for meds, for medical, it's plastics, right? I don't know. So I do not know this completely, but I'm going to guess true. Ooh. It's actually false. We oh, no. Him. I beat him. Victory. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it's false. Shockingly. Um, it's cardiothoracic surgery. They have like a $6,000, uh, gap between dermatology. Dermatology is number two. Oh, Oh, wow. Well, that's good. As long as dermatology (laughs) wasn't last. Uh, Yeah. Wow. Yes. I feel victorious. Well, good job. All right. That's a good one. That's a good one. I'm just going to have to press the off button now. Yeah. He's like, (laughs) oh no. Okay. True or false? An emergency medicine PA can also do termatology. True. <laughs> true. Yes, that is true. Yes. I did not a, know that. <laughs> a, I was a, like, what? A any PA can do any job as a PA. Wow. Now, it doesn't mean that you're going to be hired for that transition immediately. People will look at your experience, but... You have the privileges and capacity within your licensure to practice the full scope of medicine within whatever your supervising provider allows. That is awesome. And how many specialties can you do at the same time? (laughs) Well, you're probably not going to do many at the same time. Um, Yeah. But more likely in the situation you're describing, you may be practicing in a rural setting and right. you're practicing within the scope of that supervising provider. So most PAs have a collaborating relationship with a single provider. So you're going to be practicing within the scope of that provider. If you have a family medicine doctor that does some degree of derm practice, surgery, whatever, because that's the only thing available, you are allowed to practice within that full range. Uh, I see. That's really cool. That's a cool perk too. <laughs> yeah. That's that's the thing that we talk about when we say that PA school gives people flexibility. So yeah, yeah. We we would never really tell someone you should practice four specialties at the same time. But <laughs> we we would tell them, hey, if you were a cardiothoracic surgery PA and within the hospital you're working at, you were very impressive to the emergency medicine team or somewhere else. They may say, we'd like to hire you because we see how you take care of patients. And that's something that you can do. If you, when you finish med school and you, if you decided I'm going to be a plastic surgeon, if the ER said, Hey, you're a great plastic surgeon. We'd like to invite you down here. You would say, I might not do that because I don't think I want to do four more years of residency and start over. Yeah. As a PA, you can say, Tell me about that job offer and what are the expectations? And here's the skill sets I have. Let's see if we can make it work. Wow, that is very flexible. Yeah. It makes us like shapeshifters. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, that was our last question. So we will wrap it up, but just thank you again. And thank you to all of our listeners. And we're just really excited about this episode and hope you all enjoyed it. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dr. Wills, for joining us. All right. Thank you both. Thank you.
This podcast was produced by Ari Rosenthal and Lorelai Edmonds and Aditi Galande. You can find our conference on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at National Pre-Health Community or MPHC 2020. You can also find our pod on Instagram at The Pre-Health Pod. Don't forget to register for MPHC 2023, July 26th to the 28th at www.nationalprehealthconf.org. And please like, leave a review, or tell one friend if you liked our pod. Thank you so much for listening. Bye.